Hello, everyone, and this is Kino Kingdom 20, which is good. It's quite the milestone for us, Rupert, mm. as I'm sure you'll agree. Yes. Uh, it means we've been talking about Die Hard 2, Die Harder now for roughly 45 to 50 hours straight. Um, and yet there's still hidden details. <laughs> There's still more to uncover from Art Evans' role in the second film. Um, this is... Balls. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to see In 4D, that would be amazing. You could probably like freeze frame it, frame it, print it off, and just print it off on a dot matrix printer and have like a big wall-sized display of William Sadler's testicles in pure grainy detail. Fantastic. Does he get naked in many other films? I don't think so. I mean, I, I think he's like synonymous with nudity, exactly. It's just in that film, he was buff as well in that film. <laughs> yeah, he'd been to a gymnasium. He was bronzed and buff. He didn't get... What was that film we watched? Um, the one where, uh, with like Fred Williamson and Stephen Lang in a, in a bar? Yeah, he doesn't get the button of VFW, does he? No, it's because he's about 80, I think. Probably. <laughs> All right. Yeah. It's just... It's not some flashback, and he's like, oh, back in Nam. And then there's like a sort of, you know, wibbly-wibbly flashback, and it's just him, and he's just got his bollocks out in the middle of, like, full warfare, and he's just going, look at them! Look at them! That doesn't happen in that film. Oh, That's a shame, that is. You wouldn't want to be getting them out in the middle of the <laughs> anyway, would you? Imagine, yeah, yeah. Imagine if you just got them out for like a joke. To you were gonna like you were just in, uh, you know, it's like a bit of downtime in the war, in Vietnam, and you think, oh, I know what'll cheer all my 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 sort of colleagues up is like a quick Krang impression. So you're just dipping your nuts in a pint of water to say, oh, I'm Krang, I hate the turtles, and shaking it round, and then you just see like a, a sniper dot. <laughs> <laughs> just go go over the bag, and you're like, oh no, I shouldn't be, I shouldn't be doing. I'm not doing this again. No more Krang impressions at Vietnam for me. Um, yeah. So, I so remember that scene from Platoon. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> I have got a few films to go through today. Quite different. Uh, the first, I've got Noroi, The Curse, Black Eagle, Blood Rage, The Rain Killer, The Secret, Dare to Dream, Redwood. The Clove Hitch Killer, and I'm just going to briefly at the start talk about Tales from the Lodge and 30 Days of Night because I haven't actually finished watching them, but I just wanted to have a brief chat with you about them. Josh Hartman. Okay. He's here. <laughs> In that film, too. Why is it that he could never, no one could ever sort his hair out? Well, I think that I think I've discovered what the problem is, right? You know how children have milk teeth. I think he's got like milk hair. It's almost like his hair's never grown into adulthood. So we've uh. talked before about like the tuft at the back and like how yeah. it's kind of asymmetrically cut. But I've also realised that he clearly can't grow sideburns. So what he does is he cuts them into like a weird point and like pushes them forwards. So it's like a kid would do sideburns, and I think that's where the problem really lies. Or like Spock would do sideburns. Yes, okay. yes, yes. Um. Okay. Well, I've got a few today. So I've got the butterfly effect. Uh, the Never-Ending Story, Colour Out of Space, The Trial of the Chicago 7, The Ninth Configuration, Police Academy, I Feel Pretty, Nobody Sleeps in the Woods Tonight, Near Dark, and if there's time, I'll mention the Rachel Divide as well. I think this could be one of my favourite episodes, you know, just going from what you've said then in that list. I'm really looking forward to talking about a few of those. Um, As usual, Rupert, before we hurtle in mm. i've managed to get some sponsorship sorted oh. um this is a weird mm. one um, really wheeling got... and dealing aren't you 
and honestly, it's quite fun to do actually to get you know. But this one was weird because it got sent to me from an email address that was when I went back to say you know thanks for sending th- thanks for sending this in and the payment stuff. The email address was just abandoned, so that was weird. Um, and I haven't had time to listen to the ad to to the sort of sponsorship yet, the advert, because I've been really busy. So um, it's, it seems fine because, as you know, Rupert, the slogan here is "If the check clears, the men who talk are all ears." So I'm up for that. Um, so I'm just gonna, before we crack on with the, you know, the meat of the podcast, I'm just gonna um, read out this little blurb they've sent, and then chuck the file on, and then we'll just go into the films then. Okay. So today we're sponsored by the lost relaxation tapes of YorkieBrown.com. Throughout the 1960s, enigmatic relaxation expert Yorkie Brown brought peace to the village of Ainderby Quernhow until one day disappearing without trace. A mystery that still baffles Ainderby Quernhow to this very day. For the first time, Yorkie Brown's lost relaxation tapes have now been re- re- rediscovered and remastered so that new generations can benefit from his lilting voice and gentle tales of Yorkshire. What follows is a selection of snippets from one of the dozens of tapes we've remastered. If you like what you hear, then come to the lost relaxation tapes of YorkieBrown.com for more. Hello, I'm Yorkie Brown, and I'm here to take you on a voyage of relaxation. You need to make sure you're lying down on a nice flat surface and not driving a tractor. Close your bloody eyes. Relax and take stock of your breathing. You find yourself on a beach. The salt water are lapping at your toes, breathing the fresh air deeply. You fall into a miasma of peace, relaxation. Nothing can stop you now as you drift away, drift away, drift away peacefully on your own soul into the night made of glass. It started as a sort of whisper in the back of my mind and grew into an all-engulfing darkness, cavernously overtaking my every thought. As I were crouched in bushes, watching him in the kitchen, it were like he wanted me to kill him. I could feel his soul yearning for that sweet release that only I could provide. I fondled the hatchet in the bushes. I'd never been so excited. I was that excited, my eyes rolled back in my head and I nearly lost my bloody footing. And just like that, it ran over. I were covered in blood and a powerful erection. It felt like the truth was inside me, bursting to get out. It was all I could do to stop myself hacking my skin off to see the truth underneath. And it was about then, I believe it was quarter to three on a Tuesday, I realised my body had become a temple of filth and I needed to cleanse myself with a hammer to once again become a bastion of hope against the encroaching tidal wave of disgust emanating from the, the, the portal I'd discovered in the kitchen. I'd have to cleanse my aura with my hammer. Luckily, I'd finished drawing the runes on it, and uh, I was pretty certain that I could live forever if I kept on killing. And I'll count backwards from 14,012, and by the time I reach zero, you'll awake fully refreshed, ready to drive that tractor all day long. 14,012. 
I click my fingers and you'll be awake bright as a bloody button. Well, that wasn't what I was expecting, to be honest. Um, that was because I've listened to relaxation tapes in my time and they don't sort of devolve into murder fantasies. Not they, usually, but the you know, he's from a different time, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, he I've never what he's doing. Maybe that was like all the rage and aimed to be Cohen Howe. I've never been there, I've never even heard of it before, so. Maybe that's just what they were after. It was a niche market, but um, I mean, yeah, I don't know. you know, in this twenty twenty's been a, a troubled year, and I think anything, anything which allows us to be just a little bit more mindful, perhaps, is of value. So yeah, get over there, click on the link. What's what's the website address again? It's www.thelostrelaxationtapesofyorkybrown.com, and it's Yorkie, i.e., not Y. Um, yeah, it may, maybe I don't know if they'll contact us again. Obviously, it just seemed a bit bizarre to be honest. But um, yeah, it's fine. Unexpected, but um, well, we've but, been yeah. sponsored by Tina Turner's, you know, Turnip Farm before, so there's no reason why we can't be sponsored by Murder Fantasy Tales from Yorkshire. I mean, I'm up for anything to be honest, as long as it keeps us going. Yep, yep. So then, That's where the money is. Um, I'll just want to quickly talk briefly about, we've already talked about what I want to say about 30 Days of Night, which was just Josh Hartnett's hair, really. Yeah. I, I, yeah, his, his childish sideies. I, cause I watched, I watched half it. I'm going to finish it off, but I was really shocked that when I heard that Danny Houston was in it as like the main vampire, I have, um, an image in my head of Danny Houston as quite sort of an erudite, well, sort of, um, softly spoken character actor. Yeah. But then in the, in that he's like a full on creepy vampire. It's actually quite cool. I was yeah, quite he's that. usually quite, he's obviously he's normally quite villainous, but in a quite as you say, quite an urbane kind of way. But yeah, he's just a monster in that. And another one that I, if you like, turned off um, <laughs> for that old Aztec saying, um, "Tales from the Lodge" appears to have come from the people who were behind the sex lives of the Potato Men. Now I know that was like a really critically maligned film. I've I've just heard bad things about it, but this has got like Mackenzie Crook and Johnny Vegas in it, um, in like a kind of like a doing the scare me thing, which is I think why I wanted to watch it. But it's it's set in a in a in a lodge and it's a group of friends. It says friends approaching their forties. They're clearly well into their fifties. Like John Johnny Vegas just looks like a load of dust on a shelf, and then your Mackenzie Crook has always looked like he's on his last legs, which he does actually play in this film. But yeah. um, it's 
I, I I got like about an hour through it, and I it's just I would just I just couldn't make it through. So I don't know if you want to give it a crack. It it's just it's like a, a load of vignettes told as scary stories from different um, members of the, of the the friend group of friends of this lodge, and I believe that each actor directed each snippet that they were their character was involved in. Right. So it, it's like a it's kind of a nice idea, but does it actually every, show? Yeah, it does. Up, so it doesn't it's already a better film than Scammy. Yeah. Um, but the problem is that you've got Johnny Vegas is, is quite funny where he describes himself as like a like a Kiefer Sutherland lost boys sort of character in this um, vampire apocalypse, zombie apocalypse, sorry. And that's quite funny. But every character in it is really one dimensional. Like the, the, the way they're introduced in the first 30 seconds is is as far as a character arc you will get. Like Johnny Vegas is kind of a hard boozing, um, you know, husband to his wife and they bicker all the time, but they love each other really. There's a bloke in his 40s who's a bit of a lost playboy who is, you know, got a hot new girlfriend. And it just doesn't move on from that. And after an hour, I thought, I just, I'm just going to turn this off, I think, because I'm not really getting anything from it at all. Um, I might give it a go. What's it? Where is it? available it's ah uh, it is on i think it's amazon prime oh is it though is it it's either amazon prime or netflix i didn't make a note because i didn't fully watch it so i didn't want to talk about it as a full review but um yeah have a go it, it, like it's better than scammy i mean i got i got a further 30 minutes into it but um yeah i don't know i just there's just something about it just got on my nerves the characters just got on my nerves so i just uh, couldn't face it so um, I think you've got more than me because I've got proper ones. I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I don't know how many you've got there. Uh, nine or ten. Uh, yeah, okay, I can kick off then. Let me just find out where Tales from the Lodge is available. Uh, it is on Prime. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So the butterfly effect, which is also on Prime. Ashton Kutcher plays the young man tormented by a set of key traumatic memories from his childhood, which he wrote down in a journal. And life has turned out pretty rough for his childhood friends who shared in some of their traumas. And Ashton Kutcher's character, he discovers he's able to look back and relive the memories through the journal and change the event. And then he wakes up in the present day as the world changed accordingly. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. For example, he may prevent something awful from happening and then he wakes up 10 years later, like, happier and wealthier, basically. So, it's quite a neat idea. Not really the butterfly effect of the title, but still, okay. It literally gives a quote at the start explaining that a butterfly can flap its wings on one side of the world and a hurricane will blow on the other. So, it's specifically what the butterfly effect is about a tiny apparently unrelated event causing a completely unforeseen ripple effect kind of catastrophe or something elsewhere mm-hmm. um but then the the film just shows him going back and making very specific and quite major changes in his own life um, <laughs> which have an entirely direct effect on himself and other people so yeah well anyway that's just grammatical i suppose it's still quite a cool idea uh the thing is, there's this absolute sort of related to that butterfly, that ripple effect thing. There's absolutely no sense in the film or even a, a kind of reference to his actions having wider effects beyond him and his immediate relationships. Um, and and that's where the problem is, really, because it doesn't really make sense, because 
what will happen is you'll go back and make these changes and then it will jump back to the future sort of thing and he'll wake up in exactly the same location in, exactly, in, in the know, same clothes same dorm yeah same clothes but with a, like a different roommate and everyone has a slightly different personality it's like oh, i'm not sure that that would happen yeah. exactly like that uh so really that it's so as i say it's a good idea but the film is really taking something quite profound and dumbing it down you see what i mean mm. uh it's i mean it's the direction is it's a couple of these guys who worked on the final a final destination film i think right it's pretty pedestrian yeah, it just looks like a film from that period that 2000s early 2000s period um and i think really even even as a, a film as kind of dumb as this could still be a lot of enjoyable fun the real problem is that ashton kutcher is just not a good enough actor i was going to ask i was going to ask this because Mm. my question was going to be i mean ashton kutcher is very much known as a comedy actor like i first saw him in in like dude where's my car and i was just thinking does he have the gravitas or the the sort of um you know the the acting behind the eyes to to give something of that weight going no and and a film like this obviously it requires him to have quite a range of emotions across a wide spectrum because depending on what he does he will end up very very kind of smart and charming or he'll end up utterly destitute and going a bit mad and i guess i mean he can be charming but the rest of it there isn't really any there's no real darkness to him i don't think that's the thing there's no it's like you say there's nothing really behind the eyes eric stoltz is in it as a child abuser and he it's a very strange little performance he gives it's kind of it's kind of woozy i mean I, he's kind of meant to be drunk but it's oddly like sleepwalking <laughs> it's bizarre um but yeah i mean the butterfly effect it's okay um but it's always frustrating i find to watch a kind of average a mediocre slash average film which could have been more profound or could have been more fun or more weird or or more mind-bending but in the end it feels like a a decent basic concept massively constrained by its need to be kind of like digestible and mainstream uh almost like it's too afraid to explore its ramifications i remember um i remember this coming out and i don't think if i did watch it it was it's not in my memory at all and i remember friends of mine watching it and like being really blown away by it and saying that oh it's 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 like a real you know head mess sort of thing i was going to swear that you know like a head uh yes bender then head funk yes a head funk um and and oh the idea is it's crazy it's, it's just like really cool but then it sounds crazy. like the premise is much more interesting than the film itself. Yeah, and it's it's not crazy. It's not nearly crazy enough, really. And um, yeah, I mean, people say it. People say a lot of things are amazing. Like people say that the Mossman Prophecies is a classic, but it's, it's really not. You know, these these are just very average films which happen to be in the cinema. Uh, Which happened so, to be in the cinema, hadn't been driven past a cinema as they were taken straight to VHS in independent video stores. But um, I mean, you could watch it and be entertained, but with its central concept, you would expect to come away from it with your uh, 
mind expanded in some way but really it's just it's very self-contained it's funny you should use mothman prophecies as a specific example because our mutual friend alex is a huge fan of that film and i don't ever remember watching it and i watched it and i know i watched it less than two years ago and i have absolutely no memory of it now to the point that i'm not even sure if i did watch it but yeah it's that kind of cinema and uh, just quite you know just just went to the cinema what was on oh that's on and just forgot about it instantly pretty much it seemed really really average to me I know Richard Gere, Gere, isn't it? Yes, yeah. I know Richard Gere, isn't it? Which should make it up my street, but yeah, not everything he touches turns to gold. Everyone should watch Time Out of Mind with Richard Gere. That's a beautiful film, and I think it's people should watch it. So brilliant. Um, <clears throat> okay, well, I, I watched uh, a film called Noroi the Curse, which is a film from 2005 from a Japanese director called Koji Shiraishi. And this is presented as a found footage film. Now, I can't remember when The Blair Witch came out. I'm guessing it's the early 2000s or 99? 99, yeah. 99. So this is kind of of that era, like the very much the VHS era of of, of uh, found footage. And I think it's becoming rediscovered a little bit now because I saw this on Amazon Prime. And as you know, I'm going through a bit of a, an Eastern sort of resurgence with a lot of films at the moment. Like I find myself drawn to them. So this, I thought oh, a found footage horror film that is kind of being rediscovered as a bit of a lost classic. I'll give it a goosey. And I really, really liked it. It's, um, <clears throat> it's presented as, um, as uh, a, an edited tape of someone who was a paranormal researcher called Kobayashi. Every time I hear that word, I just think about um, Usual Suspects, by the way. Yeah. If only, if only the main character was played by Pete Postlethwaite. But me, um, and he is someone who researches the paranormal and delves into it. And the film is sort of a, it, it's presented as a sort of series of chapters of this, this guy's life, of, of all these various things he's looking into, like a girl who can, do some sort of things like she can make water appear in a bottle and then when that water's tested it's got like human hairs in it and it's obviously from a specific river and it's like that's weird and then there's a woman who says that she, she can hear a neighbor she's only got one child but you can hear like dozens of babies crying in the evenings yes. and then she disappears and it's all this quite dark stuff and the Kobe, the guy who plays Kobayashi the main um, actor I think is Jin Maraki is brilliant because he's quite a big guy and he's he like, it's most of this found footage stuff it's it's kept believable because because he is a paranormal researcher he's got a cameraman so it makes sense for him to keep filming because that's his job um and a lot of it it's not all dark a lot of it is filmed in daylight like on on location and stuff but when the film ramps up in the final chapter it does get to the point where you think you would not be filming this you yeah. would be booking an uber as fast as you can to get away from this so um yeah the end of it especially when it's the main guy kobayashi filming it in his own house and it's getting really kooky you just think you wouldn't be filming this you would you'd be straight out of there you would not be thinking oh, I'll, I'll catch this for uh, you know for historical purposes it's really good because it's it's got that whole culture clash thing that you know it'll it'll show something really foul and like really quite a creepy and dark and then it'll kind of smash cut to like another thing that ties into the story but it it's like a hard cut that doesn't give you any context for it so it'll be like a a japanese daytime show about kids in a class and then it'll slowly get creepy and you realize oh actually there's there's something going on here that 
and it, it kind of does this jarring thing all the way through the film. And uh, yeah, I recommend it as as a watch. It's quite grainy now because obviously it's it's filmed on VHS and meant to be VHS, so it's like very low quality, but in quite a cool way. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't rely on any special effect. It's all, as far as I can tell, practical stuff, and it's mm-hmm. much more about mood and ambience than um, like jump scares and stuff like that. So yeah, it's definitely worth a watch, especially if you're a fan of found footage horror, because genuinely good ones are few and far between. Yes, uh, yeah, I'm not a fan of the genre generally, but the good ones, the very best ones, are definitely... stand out. They really stand out. Yeah. yeah, no, and it's 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 cool because again, you, like we talked before about, um, I think it was creep, where you just get to see, um, you know, the Japanese kind of way of life, yeah. and and it is it involves this involves sort of children and demons, and it's just, I know it was quite engaging. It's quite long. I think it's about two hours long, but it's it's a busy enough kind of film. It's not like lots of lingering shots of like woods with nothing happening. It's quite kinetic. It moves forward at quite a pace. So, and, and it, and it comes together as a, as a whole as well, because at one point, all these different cuts and all these different sort of segments, I was thinking, how are these related? And then it does actually come together as a whole. And I was really impressed with it. Yeah. That sounds intriguing. Where did you watch that? That's on prime. And that's Noroi the curse. N O R O I the curse. That sounds good. Yeah. Um, I need to issue a correction from last week. Oh, yeah. Um, Because I said that Felicia Richard from, I think it was Black Box, um, said that she was the mum in Fresh Prince, but of course she's not. She's the mum of Cosby Show. All right. Silly, silly, silly. Unbelievable. Um, I didn't, I just didn't want to say anything. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, we don't want to be sued. Um, So... Mind you, I suspect she probably wants to forget about the whole Cosby uh, period, I would have thought by now. <clears throat> yeah. Hit um, the Cosby, 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 because he's a dodgy man. <laughs> Such a gentle way of putting it. Um, right, so um, let's talk about the never-ending story then. Mm. This is, some, this is something, uh, well, my wife wanted to watch it because it's a favourite of hers from childhood so i paid for it on prime you you, you can't get it stream it anywhere free um so never a new story this was wolfgang peterson's first hollywood film it's made in 1984 he made it uh after he made das boot in 1981 and then his so his hollywood calling card was this it's based on the novel of the same name by a german author who apparently hated it so uh, it's about this kid who escapes a bunch of bullies and finds himself in a bookshop. And he's given this book called The Neverending Story, which he takes to his school and then he locks himself in the attic overnight to read it. And well, there's a storm raging outside and he's reading the book. And as he reads it, the film dramatizes what he's reading, which is about the world of Fantasia, which has been consumed by this malevolent force called the Nothing. Um, and the child hero called Atreyu must find a cure for the child empress because if she's healed, then the world is saved. Uh, and along the way, Atreyu meets various fantastical characters, befriends a beautiful sequin dragon named Falcor, and together they complete various tasks, all, all being pursued by a, a rageful wolf called Gamork, obviously. The basic concept is pretty sound because it's a 
it's a shy bullied kid he disappears into this fantasy novel um in order to basically he's overcoming his grief about the death of his mother and and it, it does have the depth and clarity of a good children's novel so each character one could argue represents a different kind of facet of the um of the kid's grief um so for example like the nothing is this huge swallowing mass which is just stealing away all hope from the world and the wolf is the rage that threatens to consume him and stuff so it's quite it's quite nicely clear in that way visually it's extremely strange uh almost surreal at times the the conceptual design was by someone called count alderico who is an artist for children's books and he creates these pretty stunning dreamlike fantasy scenes um kind of it's got this very specific palette lots of like muted colors but with these dazzling like shards of light coming out um and the puppet work is really good it's pretty much on a par with the jim henson stuff from the time and although must be said towards the end of the film when he starts flying around on his dragon Ooh. some of the superimposing there not so good it's a little bit wonky does not look like he is there he is lit differently um i i do i love weird 80s fantasy films i like I like this and labyrinth dark crystal legend time crawl i yes that would be one of them uh Baron Munchausen, Norsica, Fire and Ice, weird ones, very weird. They, I think what it is, is they, they all seem just off the leash. They kind of work in really bizarre ways. Um, they kind of work the way that children's minds work. So they're not that coherent, but so imaginative and bizarre and also dark at the same time. I don't really see that spirit so much anymore in modern fantasy films um and i wonder if it's possibly something to do with the fact that the gap between kind of little childhood and adulthood has been squeezed more and more so there isn't really so much room for this like kind of fantasy cinema for younger kids like serious fantasy cinema for younger kids um this is it is a bizarre film in other ways as well because i noticed there isn't there isn't really a single fight scene in the whole film it's which you would obviously get a lot of now they'd be probably be working up to a big battle or something but this is all about traps um i guess the traps of his own mind but uh anyway yeah. yes what are you gonna say no i'll just let you finish i i um this is a film that i'm quite familiar with i'm there's actually someone in my family was named after sebastian the character in this film because my auntie is such a big fan of the movie That's and and I remember watching this because I was born in 83 and I, this was like you say in 84 and I remember watching this. It was one of the films that was on like every day on repeat when I was very, very young. And I have like, it's one of those films that I don't really feel the need to watch again because it like kind of like the game monkey Island, like holds a nice place in my mind. I probably yeah. will watch it when I, when I have, have a kid and then, you know, think oh, I'll be nice to watch together. But I, I remember it being quite weirdly frightening. Like with the, um, this is the film. Am I right in thinking? With like the huge sort of golems that eat stone. Yeah, there's this big, yeah. This is big um yeah, like giant stone golem thing, and he just literally uses he picks up boulders and just chews them like sweets. It's quite amusing. Um, um 
And uh, yeah, yeah, I remember it being a little bit frightening, but and you know, like even when the kid is in the attic and stuff, and I remember him weirdly eating an apple for some reason. Um, but I remember it's it's very um, like you say, there's it's not about like clashing swords. It's about mm. you know them going making their way through like a swamp or yes. making their way past something like a gate. Uh, and yeah, it, I, I like that adventure sort of side of it as a kid. It has the yeah, it has the feel of a fairy tale rather yeah. than like a fancy epic. Um, I think it does pass the nostalgia test, by which I mean it's still watchable, basically. <laughs> um, mostly through kind of spectacle, but also some psychological sturdiness, I'd say. And of course, the theme song by Limal and Giorgio Moroder. That is great. Yeah. I've got this game on Commodore 64 as well. I've never played it though. Does um, the music is the music as rich as Moroder's work, or well through the SID chip? Well, the thing is, I mean, the Commodore 64 had a pretty good, uh, a, a good call when it came to like sound design. So I'm, I'm assuming it would be better than if it was on the Spectrum, in which case it would just be a single searing bleep of the same pitch. So, well, through After a PC that... speaker. <laughs> yeah, where you just press play and it, you know, it's not quite the same. Um, so yeah, I'll have to let you. I will actually listen to it. Let you know next time. Okay. Um, I the next one for me is one that I know you tried to watch and I did watch, and that is Black Eagle, starring Sho Kasugi mm-hmm. and John Claude Van Damme. Now this came out in 1988, and um, I, it's a film. I to be honest, not only have I never seen, but I'm pretty sure I've never heard of. I don't know how. It's like a it's like a blind spot in in um, Van Damme's kind of filmography for me, but. I can see why uh, no one ever talks about it. Um, pardon me, sorry. So the story is that Kentani, played by Shokasugi, who, not forgetting, in the 70s and 80s, made a big name for himself as as the titular ninja in the, I think there was three or four ninja films. And so he's like a very accomplished martial artist. And he is, so for him to do this, I was expecting, okay, Van Damme is a henchman, but you can tell that after Bloodsport, They've just written him a bigger part and made him on the. He's bigger on the cover than Shokasugi himself, and he's just the main guy's henchman. Um, so the story is that there's uh, a, like a, a an airplane, like a stealth airplane, crashes over in the over the ocean near Malta, and it's got some sort of like laser guidance system on it that's worth millions. And there's kind of a race to to get to it, and the I believe it's the CIA send Shokasugi, uh, his character is Kentani, in to get it. And then Jean-Claude Van Damme is the main henchman for, I think it's just like a load of Russians who are trying to get it as well. It's a, it's a really weirdly bizarre film because for a start, right? The whole film really fixates on Shokasugi's relationship with his children who are actually played by his real children. Um, one of whom is Kane Kasugi, who is now a big martial arts star himself, which is cool. He looks the same. He looks the same 30 years ago. Um, and the film focuses on, like relate family relationships like it mm. spends a weird amount of time with john claude van damme falling in love with this woman um and you think what other film what other action film would ever focus on a henchman falling in love with a woman like what that's not interesting an action and, film re-edited to <laughs> the profile of one of its lesser lesser stars i suppose it, it's also one of those films you know when there's going to be a fight scene because everyone's trousers are above their heads and their the, the, the ankles are out for all to see um so watching this yeah it, um shokasugi spends a lot of time 
like sort of lamenting the fact that he doesn't spend any time with his children and they he brings they're over in Malta as well and he's trying to spend time with them trying to get this like laser device uh with the help of someone called um Joseph Bedelia played by Bruce French who I'll talk about in a minute but the, the whole thing even if that if I were to focus on if I were really interested in that sort of familial narrative even if I watched this 1918 action film with Jean-Claude Van Damme and I really connected with Shokasugi spending time with his children walking around Malta looking at tourist attractions <laughs> it's completely thrown off by the very first scene of the film where they say we need someone to go and get this you know this um, guidance system and they say oh we need Kentani and then the the main boss of the CIA says, oh, no, we can't call him in because he only gets two weeks a year to spend with his children. And this is those two weeks. But then they call him in anyway. And he's the whole film. He's like, oh, I'm trying to spend time with my kids. And I think, piss off. You're clearly a bad father. You're 50 weeks a year. You literally don't see your kids. You see them for two weeks. And you're thinking that because you're taken away for a couple of days, that's going to affect your relationship with them. No, I think it's snacking anyway. <laughs> two weeks a year it's ridiculous so i i literally see my milkman more than that so it's yeah the whole thing is just like no if you really love your kids you would have just stopped doing this job and you would just spend time with them especially because their mother has obviously died off screen and they're left with a guardian so it's like you just completely alienate your family anyway so this whole plot doesn't hang together um the one saving grace in this film is bruce french who plays he's like um He's a, he's sort of the one who's his uh, wingman in this whole thing. Like he kind of arranges for the operation while uh, Shokusugi does all the sort of heavy lifting and stuff. And he's really, he's a really weirdly endearing character. Every time he's on screen, you think, oh, he's acting. Oh, that's actual acting. And and he's like really, like his character. Whenever he talks about himself in the film, it's like he's clearly the most interesting character because he's kind of got these torn allegiances and he's like, like lost his past and he's just trying to sort of still, as he gets older, still be uh, helpful and still still play a part in the world. And you think this this is he's just like I really want to see him in more films. Mm. Um, he's like really enigmatic. But yeah, the film around it is nonsense. It's not it's not good for the sort of family art because it's just just not believable at all. And it's not, um, there's hardly any action in it. There's, I think there's three fight scenes and they're just filmed in like open spaces and it's just like really boring. And I'm pretty sure that they do the same choreography for two of them because really? Van Damme does this, constantly does this thing where Shokasugi will like throw a punch and he'll do the splits to avoid it. Mm. And, and I, which I'm pretty sure is where the Johnny Cage move comes from. And it's like, You've done you have you're only having two fights and they're both using the same choreography, so I don't, uh, it's it's really boring in that term as well. Mm. Uh, yeah, there's I think boredom was the, the thing that turned me off it, but yeah, there's nothing, there's yeah. nothing there, uh, yeah, because I was kind of I thought, well, if it's I, I could see pretty quickly it isn't going to be an action movie as such, but it just seemed like a real sub bond type. Thing, you know like spy well like espionage type thriller and it, it was not thrilling in any way and there's, I'm sure there's they had all... a nice time waltzing around malta for a few weeks, oh yeah but... um i'm pretty sure as well that there's there's some it's directed by someone called eric carson who i've literally never heard of but there's a scene in it where i think they're just having fun at uh shokosuke's accent because there's a, a point in it where he says to bruce french 
oh, I'm going to I'm going to need a hang glider. So you can imagine how someone Asian would say that word. And then Bruce French says, oh, what's sorry? And he's like a hang glider. And you think, hmm, is that the level of humor we're working at where you're making fun of someone's accent in a film? So there's like little little moments like that. You think, nah, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not really on board with this. Yeah. And like you say, the main problem with it, it's boring. It's also got the most... The, I'm just going to spoil it because no one should watch this film. The way that um, Jean-Claude Van Damme dies in this film is brilliant. Brilliant. Because they obviously needed to write him out of the film yeah. because, because he's obviously not the star. So he kind of has this fight with... Uh, show Kasugi that obviously John claude Van Damme said well I can't lose it because I'm a big up and coming star and show Kasugi probably said well I can't lose it because I'm I'm like I'm the star of the film so they have the fight where it just kind of ends and then like show Kasugi runs off to do something else and Bruce French shoots John claude Van Damme in the leg and then it just cuts to clearly not John claude Van Damme shouting at this woman um, on a boat saying get off there's a bomb on the boat and then he kind of like runs like half hops clearly not John claude Van Damme falls into the water and then just gets like pulled into the engine and just minced and it's like what none of that <laughs> none of that is actually John claude Van Damme oh the way when he's running up it's just someone with like just swept back here and a totally different bill just running up a pier and then he falls into the water she screams and then it just shows like you know, zooms in quickly on a propeller, and then she turns away while you just hear like a like sort of mincing sounds. And it's like right, that's him at the film. Nice. So brilliant, but yet very very boring, very boring. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so I won't bother finishing that one then. I I because I was, I remember seeing it on Prime and thinking, oh, is this some hidden gem? Uh, like same here. Yeah. It's got Jean Claude Van Damme's all over it, and then I was watching it thinking, where is Jean Claude Van Damme? <laughs> he is put. He's busy putting on his trousers that are up by his tits. That's what he's doing. <laughs> yeah, and also because Shokusuge knew he was like a really sort of renowned martial artist. I was looking forward to some really tasty choreography, but no, you don't even get that. Yeah, just it was. It's very pedestrian. Um, okay, uh, and that's that's on Prime. We know that's on Prime. It's the only place for it to be, really, isn't it? Um, <laughs> color out of space is on prime uh so richard stanley i i knew i i knew the name from somewhere and then of course he made hardware and dust devil in the early 90s and is he south african i think so yeah um so he made them in the early 90s then he got fired from the island of dr moreau <laughs> that's famous that, that's where i think that's where i know his name from yeah. i think and then he did nothing for almost 25 years. Bloody hell. Um, so it's amazing. That's what I find amazing about Color Out of Space, that it's so sort of competent and controlled um, as a film, especially when it's such a kind of melting pot of ideas and really highly stylized visuals. And it is very uneven, but I kind of think that's part of its appeal. It's, it's almost entirely unpredictable. So this is the film with Nicolas Cage and that I watched yeah. a couple of months ago. Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. So the, the ostensibly the plot is that Nick Cage and Jolie Richardson have escaped the rat race of the city and moved to this idyllic farmhouse in the country. And the family, which includes uh, an older daughter and two sons, is is a little kooky, shall we say, but they're basically nice and it's a nuclear family. Uh, but then one night a meteorite lands in the garden 
and it smells and it starts <laughs> radiating a strange glow. Uh, then weird stuff starts happening. Uh, this sort of magenta rot starts infiltrating everything. Uh, Nicholas Cage naturally starts going a bit, a bit wild. Uh, mutations start occurring. Um, you get assimilations of animal and human bodies. Uh, yeah, it's a film that does uh, go places, should we say. Um, I, I said it was uneven, but there is a kind of unifying tone, at least, behind everything, because um, some monster movies with a kind of stark 80s aesthetic tend to be self-consciously wacky and self-referential, but um, with Colour Out of Space, it, it does take itself entirely seriously, albeit with the odd bit of dry, ironic humour. Um, like, <laughs> I love the bit where the police come around and uh, Nicolas Cage offers a drink to the sheriff while literally his wife is turning into a spider upstairs. Um, <laughs> I, I, I like how no one is safe in the movie and characters are just stolen away in an instant or just killed or just vanished from the screen instantly. It's really cool. There's a lot of good practical effects in the film. Uh, there's one particular scene which is clear homage to the dog mutation scene in the thing which was always welcome um, there, there is a fair amount of cgi towards the end which can look a bit cheap but it's also quite dazzling in a kind of prog rock album cover kind of way uh some moments towards the end i, I felt it felt like a kind of trash horror version of the fountain that the, the darren aronofsky film um so yeah, there's only one way the film kind of goes. It just keeps ramping up and up. And then literally by the end, it's just a cacophony of screaming sounds and trippy visuals. Really. Uh, it is, it does not bother. It does not stay grounded, put it that way. Um, I think like a lot of HP Lovecraft inspired stuff, it's probably too conceptually kind of like out there to be relatable um, on a kind of, just everyday level but but what an awesome way for richard stanley to make a comeback because it it is properly insane and it does look gorgeous is you there are cosmic horror is few and few and far between and nicholas cage is the man for it yes well this, this the is the only one he can really yeah he's the only one who can steer the ship <laughs> this yeah a few things if i if you don't mind me just chatting about this for a bit because i can remember this pretty well was I, I i agree with you the the whole thing the way that it, the cosmic horror works really well in this because what i really took away from it was i didn't like it as much as mandy um but i, I liked how it was what was happening was beyond human comprehension and explanation yeah. and you you really feel that like there's no way to stop this because you can't even understand it the one of the funniest bit in the film for me was is this someone there's like a hydrologist or something and yeah, he's there yeah. studying water there's a bit where he goes to tommy chong and he offers him a glass of water and it's just thick and brown with a foam head <laughs> and they're all glugging it back and, and i remember he looks at it and, and i just like the way he said oh it's a bit brackish isn't it <laughs> It's clearly not like drink up all water. It's a bit brackish. Um, did you did you spot Nicolas Cage doing his Donald Trump impressions? I did. I did not specifically, but he oh, does, it's some of the just nuts. When because of course he's meant to be going nuts, and he, yeah. he deals with it in a, in a totally bizarre way. 
like he'll just be in total denial one minute and then just nuts absolutely crazy this, the next minute yeah and i really the, like the denial bits are just hilarious like that bit i was saying about where he's just like is <laughs> like there's someone mutating into a spider upstairs and he's just like oh do you want a drink it's like, <laughs> oh. Brilliant. I did like as well the relationship between the siblings. I thought that was really natural. They had like a genuine chemistry. Yeah, it did feel natural. Like actually, the because it's quite an idiosyncratic family. But then I think, yeah, it's not an idealized family. It's not a particularly sentimentalized family. It's it's just it feels quite real. And um, yeah, I enjoyed this a lot. So moving on then from. The Color Out of Space to Blood Rage or Nightmare at Shadow Woods or Slasher. Have you seen this? I have. I think I've got the Arrow Blu-ray maybe, yeah, which three, includes both. Three discs, I believe. Yeah. Inc- which includes I, both what? It includes, well, I know it includes Blood Rage and Nightmare at Shadow Woods. I don't know whether, <laughs> not sure whether Slasher was in there too. I'm not I know that one of the two, either Blood Rage or Nightmare at Shadow Woods, one of them is the grotesquely violent one, and one of them is the ridiculously sanitized one. I believe the one that is on Amazon Prime is the ridiculously violent one, and is yes. all the better for it. Yeah. Um, this is a film I was hoping because I'd never, I never heard of this film <laughs> under either of its titles, and I was keen because I thought I really want to watch, uh, like I'd really sort of brash 80s slasher and my god it's the perfect film for that so the film starts with like a woman who is clearly in her late 70s (laughs) like snogging like a bloke who's 20 in a car with her two like teenage um sort of 10 year old twins identical twins sleeping in the back and he's like snogging her really in a really 80s rutgahauer way where they're just like slamming their faces against each other and and she talks and i thought oh my god you've got like you've got like a real smoker's voice. You look quite dry and you're clearly in like your late forties, early fifties. And she's got that kind of gaggle. And I thought, why are you kissing this woman in a drive-in? Like she's what your grandmother anyway. So the two boys escape and they see um, a teenage couple kind of getting on, getting down to it in a, in a car with this drive-in theater. And one of the boys just hacks this bloke's face off with a hatchet. And it's fair play. I was loving the special effects because there's not like, you know, he swings the axe, it cuts back and he gets a spray of blood. No, camera stays on this bloke's face and it is getting hacked apart. So um, then, of course, everyone runs over and starts screaming. And one of the boys is standing there completely in a sort of in a comatose sort of just sort of standing straight forward, holding the axe. And the other brother's like, oh, wake up, wake up, Jimmy, whatever his name is now. <laughs> what do you think the twist in the film is going to be? So anyway. <laughs> It cuts then forwards about 15 years and one of the brothers, uh, uh, which one is it? Terry, Terry and Todd. So Terry is the one who's living with his mother and she's like remarrying this bloke and Todd is like in an asylum and you, and it's played by the same character, uh, the same actor, Mark Soper. But I got to say, usually in these films, but my, the nadir of this to me, when one actor plays two people, is Gary Daniels in Cold Harvest, where his identical twin brother is him smirking with a beret on. Yeah. But this this is actually like does it quite well because whereas Terry's got this kind of sheen against the world, hiding his kind of the killer inside sort of thing. 
Todd is like really meek and it's like a, almost like a physical change. He's kind of like hunched and mm. really nervy and he's got tousled hair so we can tell them apart at a glance. And what happens then is just this killing spree that they assume is like the brother who's escaped from this asylum, yeah. but is actually the, the Terry, which is not really a twist. You find out in the first 10 minutes is going around this kind of um, campus, killing everyone, a campus in which everyone seems to know each other and live within four seconds of each other's houses. Cause it'll be like, Oh, look, who's that? Oh, it's Jim. And then Jim will run over and it's like, oh, hang on. I've got to go to Tina's house. And then she walks four steps to the left and she's at Tina's house. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Keeps the pace up. Um, so yeah, it's just a lot of like really full on gore. And I thought when I was watching it, because this said it was released in 87. And I thought a lot of the clothes that people are wearing, the amount of doilies on show in some of these houses would lead to this being late seventies. And I think it was filmed much earlier on that it was released like a good few years earlier. Yeah. I um, didn't even, when I was watching it, I just, it felt like it was part of the early eighties slasher wave. You know, I'm, well, I'm just, just uh, 1983. I'm just noticing on Wikipedia. And it was filmed in 83 and yeah. released in 87, but yeah, wow. you can really tell. Um, I do love the mother's breakdown, the way that she's just constantly like, like is refusing to come to terms with what's happening. And she's just boozing and cleaning and just constantly weeping and just desperate for anything, anything to be resolved. Um, I really liked it. And I think it's a film that I'll watch again because it, it generally feels like a bit of a lost 80s classic. Yeah, it's it's really, really nasty. And but in a mischievous, mischievous way. It, yeah, everyone kind of knows what's going on. Yeah. Um, I and it, I even like the ending as well. Usually these things, but I did actually like the ending. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, I'm going to have to watch that again now. You are going to have to quite, watch it again. Yeah, it's good. I'm quite up for some early 80s slashes. Yeah. There, there are a few good ones out there. And I mean, Arrow Video, who released this version, uh, where did you watch it, by the way? Uh, Prime, Amazon Prime. Right, yeah, because um, Arrow Video, they, they, they've done a good job of unearthing actually good slashes from that period because they're few and far between, let's face it. But um, they do, they have done a good job of, of fishing them out, remastering them and that, so they're not forgotten, which is great because, yeah, because stuff like this should be seen. And, it, yeah, it's if you're up for, like, really nasty... But knowingly nasty kind of uh, gore-filled slasher movie from with that unique kind of early '80s atmosphere. Yeah, Brilliant. yeah, or, or like a high school campus thing. There was um, a high school campus where everyone is in their 30s. I was there was some tense scenes as well. Like there's a um, a scene where uh, the killer is just basically hacking his way through the campus, and there's um, like a a mother and a baby. And the baby plays quite a prominent part. And you think, oh, come on now. How far is this film going to go? <laughs> but um, mm. so there's like genuine tension in it as well as a sense of fun. Yeah. Um, um, so is it called Blood Rage or Nightmare of Shadow Woods? It was called, I'm pretty sure it was called Blood Rage on Amazon Prime. And then when I clicked on it, it came yeah. up a slasher in the title. So I've never seen Nightmare of Shadow Woods. I don't know if that's like an American release or whatever, but I think it um, was, yeah, yeah. Because I I remember watching the Blu-ray and it came up with, I, it said Blood Rage, and then he, when the actual title started, it was like Nightmare at Shadow Woods. I literally put in the other disc to make sure I did I wasn't given the wrong one, and the other <laughs> one just comes up with Blood Rage. So it's like right, okay. I can't imagine watching the homogenized homogenized one would be no, because it's not that. So watch the full-on version. Yeah, I don't see why you wouldn't at this stage. It may have been to get around the video nasty thing, because if you think about it, 
when did I don't know when the video nasty ruling came in, but it probably would have been about sometime between it being made and it being released. So I don't know whether it's to get around that. So it wasn't a video nasty anymore. I don't know. Um, bit of trivia as well that uh, Ted Raimi. Uh, who sells condoms at the start it is clearly his first film he is younger than some of my shoes so that is ted raimi's first film was a bit of triv as well yes. trivia short trivia by the way yeah 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 god yeah um so yeah that was blood rage bloody good nice i could go on the poster okay um the trial of the chicago seven on netflix slightly different type of movie this is a dramatization of the late 60s trial which involved a group of anti-vietnam protesters uh, being charged with crossing state lines into chicago to incite uh, a riot there are actually eight on trial and i think other versions of this have been dramatized before to call them the chicago eight the the eighth was a member of the black panthers although that case was dismissed um, it was quite a separate thing. Um, so anyway, so Chicago 7, yeah. It's written by, and directed in fact, by Aaron Sorkin, who is a very, very good screenwriter, who wrote stuff like A Few Good Men, Steve Jobs, uh, Social Network. Uh, I think he might have written The West Wing as well on TV. Anyway, so he's very, he writes very... Um, recognisable dialogue, very, very sharp dialogue, like... Stuff that the way I, I think of it is that he, he makes characters say the kind of things that you wish you'd said looking back at an incident, if you see what I mean. You know, mm. when you think of something really clever you could have said to someone in an argument or whatever, he writes it and makes characters say it. So it's, it's pretty good. There are really good performances from Sasha Baron Cohen and Eddie Redmayne. Uh, I'm Sasha Baron Cohen's. Illinois accent. I don't know whether it's overplayed, possibly a bit. Frank Langella is the judge, because it's, it's basically a courtroom drama, really. But Frank Langella is really good as the judge, and he <laughs> he's one of the main characters, and he combines like utter confidence with just colossal thoughtlessness in what he's saying. Uh, oh. It has a very Hollywood ending, and... And actually, there are a few moments throughout the film which, shall we say, maximise the dramatic impact. Um, for example, there's a scene where the Black Panther guy is, he makes such a fuss in court that he ends up being gagged and bound in the court. Um, mm. <laughs> which isn't quite as it truly occurred, apparently, but I do think it delivers the required effect. And I think... Even in real life cases, there is room for broader truths or figurative truths amongst the actual truths because you're never going to get it exactly, um, you know, true to life. Um, I'm not sure. Does it get to the bottom of the issue? Perhaps. Yes. It's clearly unfair that these seven were scapegoated, but still the a crime did occur. So. But more, more than anything, it was about poor planning, really, because this is what happens, essentially, if you don't allocate space for a protest, because people will come anyway, do the protest, and then be in even more trouble. So you're better off giving people the space to protest so they can do it peacefully. So, I mean, it's quite simple, mm. really. So anyway, the yeah, the 
there is a line between like fence sitting and offering a range of different perspectives. And Aaron Sorkin's clever enough to get this right. And I think in these sorts of cases, it takes a lot of skill to raise more questions than provide answers. Although it must be said, Aaron Sorkin is in little doubt who the real villain is. And actually in the end, it's it's less about a system uh, going wrong than a, a very foolish and bigoted individual operating within that system. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely it's a good film and it will definitely inspire conversations. Uh, so yeah, it's good that. Trial of the Chicago 7. And that is a Netflix um, That does sound like... I must admit that every now and again I'm in the mood for a courtroom drama. Um, never the Pelican Brief, though. But No, it, and, it, especially an Aaron Sorkin courtroom drama because it's just so well written. The dialogue's so good that every line is just like... It, it really... It's, it's perfectly calibrated. I, I can imagine this is a kind of film where especially when now because he's directing it as well i imagine it's the kind of movie where on set it'd be like right you say exactly what is written on the page nothing different even if you take a breath at the wrong spot and yeah. blow my brains out so the pressure's on what when was this made sorry uh it's very recent this, this year oh okay <clears throat> cool no I, I may watch that but I, god knows when the the next you know mood for a Courtroom drama will take me, and even then, I might just watch the client on repeat, so it's hard to say. I suspect um, if you do start watching it, you will not put it down because it is quite enthralling. Um, for me, then, the next film is 1990s The Rain Killer, which is very much a film that is on Amazon Prime. <laughs> Have you heard of this film? No. Although there, there is a reason for that. The logistics of killing rain. No. <laughs> You'd have to be a really good aim. <laughs> Someone well. with a scalpel looking out the window at every raindrop and saying, oh, those little bastards, he would be busy. Um, so, you know, it's someone, uh, the rain killer is someone who kills in the rain. And the way that oh. is brought up in the film is absolutely fantastic. So this is like a, like a mystery sort of... Um, erotic slasher and it stars and I'll, I'll go into this later on ray sharkey david beecroft tanya coleridge and i think it's one of the first films of michael chiklis michael chiklis's clothes in this film are absolutely unforgivable he because he's I, he rocks up he's got i can see why he shaves his head let me tell you because he's got this ridiculous like brillo hair under like a really ostentatious like new york yankees wherever baseball cap and then he's got like he'll have like a tie or a dicky bow on with a really bright shirt and over that he'll have like a sweater vest or a jumper that's got like loads of pringle patterns on it and be like pastel colors it's like oh and he plays a relatively minor part in this film so so why are you wearing those clothes everyone else is wearing like everyone else actually is wearing the most ridiculous trench coats i've ever seen no one's clothes are good no one's clothes fit them or are good um so the film is that ray sharkey uh is a detective who's a bit burned out he's always boozing on the bog obviously with his wild turkey good 46 percent. thomas jane drinks it in the punisher hashtag the same and he is just clattered all the time and there's someone is killing women um when it's raining and well they they think this right one person is killed 
and then another one is killed on a train, which is the sort of introduction of the film. We see a woman getting stalked. She's getting stalked, right? She's walking and she's banging down with rain. So she's got a stupid overcoat on that doesn't fit. And she turns around and there's a man behind her, like like walking really quickly to catch her. And she like runs off a little bit. And then she turns around again and he's gone. And that's when she's sized relief. That is when I would panic further. <laughs> She's like, oh, thank God, that was close. And I thought, yeah, but where is he, though? Really? I mean, ooh. um. So they, she gets stabbed to death in a train, and they get pulled in. And then they, it cuts to them, Ray Sharkey, with his curly hair, in the in the pre- police precinct, and his captain is saying, right, you know, Michael Chiklis is his partner. So, right, what do we know? And they're, like, saying, right, you know, there was no witnesses. Someone saw a man with reflective glasses, but it might not be the guy. We know he uses a certain knife. And someone says, and he only kills in the rain. And I thought, two murders, right, weeks apart, and it's constantly raining where you are. That's not that's not a thing. You wouldn't think that. He only murders when it's 21 degrees Fahrenheit. It's what? No, I think that's just something that happens. There's no reason for it. So I think it's just an excuse to have like a really, really noirish set in any way. The, so the film, and I'm thinking... Okay, this is going to be like, you know, what's going on? And is it going to be like a lot of smoking, looking out of windows, a lot of existential dialogue, a lot of drinking? Sign me up. But what it actually happens is David Beecroft plays an FBI agent who gets sort of dragged into it to help out Ray Sharkey's character solve it because he's literally just sitting in his house drinking. And, and they're like, can you, any any leads, anything? Um, and it just turns into like this weird love triangle between Ray Sharkey, who starts shagging Tanya Coldridge, who's David Beecroft's like ex-wife, after meeting her once. So it just turns into like an erotic thriller, like a really tedious erotic thriller. And when I first saw Tanya Coleridge, I thought it was a man because she's got this really boyish haircut and she was wearing really like masculine clothes. And I thought that was going to play a part in the plot, but no. Um, Michael Chiklis may as well not be in the film and his jumpers certainly shouldn't have been in the film. But what I was found more intriguing about the it's just a tedious plot that plays out in a really boring way with a really, really over the top ending that the very final sequence in it, I'm not going to give it away because it's kind of like the only sort of trump card it's, the film has got. The final sequence in it is just ridiculous. And it, it, it kind of, it's like the script has given itself more gravitas than the viewers are giving it. And you just think, oh, come on, don't do that. So it's just a stupid ending. But more interesting than all of this is Ray Sharkey is an interesting character because I'd never heard of him before. I don't know if you've heard of him as an actor. Ray Sharkey? Yeah. Uh, I've heard of him. Uh, he's dead, isn't he? Yeah, well, this is the thing. This film was this was filmed in ninety. In 1990 and released in 1990 and he died in 92 of AIDS and if you look at his Wikipedia profile it looks like he just slept with loads of women without telling them that he was HIV positive and so knowing that I'm watching the film and you can I don't know if it's just had bad skin but you can see he's got like um, really pitted skin in the film and I thought and of course you're watching these like sex scenes and you're thinking hmm <laughs> and it just made me think oh, yeah, it's a bit saucy isn't it but um it, what it boils, moving that aside, Ray Sharkey's personal life out of the equation, it's just a really generic, erotic, like mystery film that is just tedious. Mm. Uh, yeah, well, I suppose it was, well, actually, I suppose it predates the real erotic thriller wave of the 90s. Of yeah, starring 80s. Shannon Tweed and Shannon Weary. Yeah. 
Um, so yeah, maybe maybe it was ahead of its time. Yeah, it, it could be the progenitor of those things, but it's yeah, in in and of itself, it's not particularly interesting. Yeah, erotic thrillers aren't. It's it's not a genre I gravitate towards. I must say. <laughs> No, I think it's only a genre that teenage boys in the early 90s gravitated towards, to be honest. <laughs> not naming names. Uh, <laughs> uh, right. Yeah, so, yeah, not very good. Yeah. Okay, I probably won't watch that. That's on Prime, presumably, is it? Of course it bloody is, a stupid question. <laughs> um, let's stop messing about and talk about the ninth configuration, shall we? Yes, yes, yes. Where did you watch it? I can't remember. Uh, I think this was on Prime. Yeah. You watched it on a Blu-ray that you bought on my recommendation. I literally, I literally bought it while you were talking about it. I am so excited to hear your thoughts about this film. I'm very excited. This is one of my absolute favourites of the year. I'll quickly run through the very basic story again, just because I'm happy to talk about this again, because it's fine. Everyone should watch it. The, <laughs> the setting It's set in the 70s, uh, towards the end of the Vietnam War, and Stacey Keach plays a colonel who arrives at this old castle to take over the care of the mental patients. Uh, who are veterans, uh, and they are going mad there, basically. Question, what? Why is there this huge ancient Germanic castle in the US? (laughs) Don't you worry about that. (laughs) It is, it's a very kind of gothic looking place, and the whole aesthetic looks like it should be a horror, but it really isn't a horror at all. It's more of an absurdist psychological drama. Uh, it could even be a stage play, I was thinking, because it's it's very kind of small scale. I would watch a, this. If it was it a play, I would watch it. It, it, it. it would work really well as a stage play, I think. Anyway, um, things, yeah, things I noticed about this. Yeah, Stacey Keach is so good in this. I mean, we covered a lot of it last week. He, I noticed he speaks like, um, I don't know whether he was inspired by this, but he speaks like Hal uh, in from 2001 A Space Odyssey. I think was played by a man called Douglas Rain in a very monotone kind of computerized voice, not like pretending to be a computer, but very, um, very unemotional voice, very flat. And it's like he's an automation in this. And I guess it's consistent with his character's struggle to feel these very deep emotions. Um, The film is, it concerns the kind of dehumanizing nature of the military but also goes into the nature of insanity and whether you do you cure the insane by denying their twisted version of reality. And it made me think it's kind of what you get if Andre Tarkovsky directed like a farce, uh, which he almost did, to be fair, with his last film, Sacrifice. But this is very, very funny, um, much funnier than any Tarkovsky films. And <laughs> it sort of feels like a marriage between mash the robert altman thing and samuel fuller's shock corridor so you've got the kind of um the anti-war tomfoolery of the the kind of uh the vietnam stuff combined with because shock corridor was um quite a well controversial film at the time when was it made 60s and that was about mental asylum and that was quite absurd in its own way um but yeah, it's consistent with a lot of the anti-war films from the period. So you've got like Coming Home, Apocalypse Now, The Deer Hunter, because this was made, what, early 80s? Uh, or even late 70s? I think it was 1980. I anyway. think it was 80 on the dot, yeah. Yeah. 
and so it's consistent with those but and i suppose in a way it falls into that same category like the aforementioned films that of these pretty lavish auteur films that spelled the death of the auteur and and really paved the way for the kind of franchise filmmaking of the 1980s um because it really is just a very personal very idiosyncratic movie and in the end it it seems to be concluding that beneath the madness and the conspiracy theorizing at the bottom human sanity is simply based on emotions and a will to no longer feel lonely um as is represented by the godless guy that um what's his name scott wilson is that his name scott f wilson yeah um i'm not sure i think you mentioned that there's this kind of final moment stacy keach's final act i'm not sure that it absolutely proves the point he's trying to make but no not at all um but yeah we've got well i won't i won't mention anything else but i'm i don't think it matters too much like i just think given it's meant to be of a shocking nature i i'm not sure it's that so shocking that someone would be kind of like be healed because of it yeah like shocked out of their insanity because of of an act mm, especially yeah, when I... you know we're talking about veterans here like who would have seen some pretty awful things so um yeah it is a strange film but it's certainly not it's not a random film it's definitely controlled and it is yeah made and, with and it's purpose. not it's not like a surreal and like the the, the humor isn't like zany it, it comes out of like very precisely yes. written actions and dialogue which yeah yeah and i enjoyed I, it a lot I think it's it's one of my favorites because I just didn't know what to expect and I didn't expect to laugh that much and then when this sort of tonal shift happens uh, towards the end it, it sort of feels earned it, w- although I didn't agree with what it was saying and I didn't believe in what it was saying I thought that's fine you know this film has got to end and it's it, I've had so much fun with it I'm willing to just think okay that's what this film's internal logic is doing that's fine with me yeah it's a very atmospheric film as well because it's obviously quite isolated in this castle and stuff. So oh, this this castle in America from the 14th century. It's, it's ridiculous. It's clearly just in Germany somewhere. <laughs> I think it's Hungary. I think I remember reading <laughs> it was in Hungary. Yeah. Uh, but um, yeah, it's what's really interesting as well is when you look at like um, if you look into interviews with people of the film like Tom Atkins and Scott Wilson at the time, they they were just saying that like. It was like it was just, just got drunk in a castle. Just got battered, yeah. And they were just telling everyone like oh, everyone has to be here at six in the morning just to make sure they wouldn't get too twatted the night before. And and the, considering like they all had so much fun, it's weird that the film was so um uh sort of complete feeling, if you know what I mean. Yeah. It was so but no, it I doesn't absolutely feel it, like it, a mess by any means. No. So yeah, like I said, I laugh more at that film than I do at 90% of most comedies. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. It was completely on the on the ball for me. And it's one of those films that I will watch several times in my life, but I'm going to yes. keep it as a treat because I yes. I, I yeah. don't want to, you know, done what I've done with like Commando where I know every single shot. I just want to enjoy it every time. Yeah. It's classic. Absolute classic. Yeah. So that's the ninth configuration and that's on Prime, we think. It's on BFI Player as well. Which I guess is available in all fairness, I did have a trial on BFI play, so it could have been there that I oh. obviously had a trial on that. <laughs> yeah, so that's probably where you saw it, in fact. Yeah, 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 it's um, worth seeking out. Definitely. Um, this is going to be a brief one from me now because 
this was before before this podcast i rang rupert and said that there was a film that i watched that i would never normally watch and it was because my um beyonce fate put it on and i just happened to sit down as it was there and i thought you know what i'm gonna watch this just because it's something i would never ever see otherwise it was just like a you know just it was just a learning a learning moment for me and that film was the secret dare to dream with katie holmes and josh lucas and this is i assumed it was just like a you know the odyssey kind of films the hallmark sort of stuff where it's just like a really gentle story about a woman who's like repairing her home after her husband's died and a stranger turns up and then they just slowly fall in love and he fixes her roof yeah and just sort of bonds with their children it's very much that um this film i'm looking on it on on metacritic it's got 32 percent um 6.4 on imdb so it didn't get very well reviewed but in all fairness i just think these films aren't there for that i think these films are there to just make people feel nice yeah it i just seemed it just it was so inoffensive and it was you know katie holmes and josh lucas are solid actors it was it was fine it was just like a slightly pleasant film um jerry o'connell's in it <laughs> just find him funny his face um and Josh Lucas, by the way, is slowly turning into Kevin Costner. Oh my God! Oh, you look at it. You look. Watch the Secret Data Dream, start to finish, and you're like, is he doing an impression of Kevin Costner? I've never seen him in any other film, but yeah, the older he gets, the more Costnerish he becomes. Um, he always had a bit of. Let me think. I mean, there's a bit of Matthew McConaughey about him, I suppose. He's quite a generically handsome guy, but yeah, I can imagine him. Yeah. He's like a southern handsome man, isn't he, yes, sort of thing? I've got to be fair, though. I assumed that there was something about the way he spoke that was quite, like, slightly camp. And I assumed he was in, in like, real life. I just assumed he was a gay man because he came across that way. But no, apparently not. He's just got, like, a really soft voice. I don't know what it is. Um, Katie Holmes' smile is like a pirate ship in that it's literally just, when she smiles, it just lurches halfway up her face, <laughs> one side. It's so bizarre. Um, but yeah, it's just I, there's not much to say about it. It's like a feel-good, you know, sort of romantic drama. But it was—I was surprised. It was just fine, you know. I've never seen anything like this before, and I didn't—I wasn't bored by it. It was just so gentle. It was almost like a, like a blanket. I can imagine women watching this in their forties and fifties and just like having a little cry when they get together at the end. And there's tiny hardships, but nothing too perilous. Can't have any kind of tension. Um, and Jerry O'Connell's in it with his eyebrows. Katie Holmes' pirate ship smile. <laughs> it literally just she smokes and it yanks at one side of her face. I thought mm-hmm. I thought it's my TV sideways, but um, no, it's just a weird smile. Um, right then. So that was on Netflix, The Secret Dare to Dream. Um, do you dare to click on it? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, let's talk about Police Academy, which is on Netflix. When you told me you were watching Police, when we were going to do this podcast a few days early and you said, oh, I'm glad we're delaying it for a couple of days because it gives me time to watch Police Academy. I, haha, thought that was a joke, but no, you've actually, you've actually watched it. I've done it. I've done it. <laughs> it is a seriously dated farce, <laughs> which spawned six sequels. Oh my God. Is this the one with Steve Guttenberg's shorts at the start that are so high that you can see his pockets? I'm pretty sure that you can see his testicles as well. <laughs> He is, he is William Saddlering in those shorts. Um, <laughs> this is a film from 1984, 
the last film was in 1994, believe it or not. It just kept going. Mission to Moscow is the last one. Um, so it is, I'd say it's marginally more amusing than Ivan Reitman's Stripes. That isn't saying much. The idea is kind of similar. The Bill Murray one with... Yeah. Yeah, and um, the idea is kind of similar. So a bunch of idiots and misfits join the police academy, uh, get shown up as fools, obviously, but then end up saving the day. The main character is Mahoney, and uh, yes, he's played by Steve Gutenberg. He is getting out of a criminal charge by joining the academy, but he's not allowed to quit. Um, that's the rule, um, and. Yeah, so he he's kind of the power behind most of the set pieces, which is essentially a series of practical jokes against Lieutenant Harris, um, uh, who is the, like his kind of nemesis, and he's trying to get Mahoney to quit. Anyway, the supporting characters you get supporting characters like Hightower. I mean, you'll remember these people. You got Hightower, who is the just big black man. Tackleberry, who's the uh, you've got an overweight camp man whose name is character's name is Leslie Barbara, <laughs> and there's mm. a fleeting appearance from Kim Cattrall. Um, you you have mentioned Jones yet? Is there a problem with that? Oh. Is he the guy who makes the sounds? Yes, he is. That was the. It's weird actually because I remember loving Jones as a kid, and he's still yeah. really cool now. He um, actually, that's so, his job. He does that. He, he does and do it. It's really good. And it's easily the best part of the film. So I was right when I was eight, and I'm still right now. Um, 68. <laughs> <laughs> there aren't any real characters, uh, or indeed any kind of character development, really. The only, the only real arc as such is the success of the characters, if you see what I mean. But it's never in doubt. So it's like, whatever. The film. The film has, it, it, the film is quite happy to indulge in misogyny and homophobia to a great degree. <coughs> to its credit, it does punish racism. So we've got that on its side. Oh, okay. Um, but there's this really weird extended scene. And I think this is the reason why the first film is, was a higher rating than the sequels, which are a bit more childish, a bit more gentle perhaps. But there's this extended scene where the commandant um, is this is another practical joke? So Steve Gutenberg takes this prostitute, and they hide under like the uh, microphone stand where the commandant's about to give a speech, and then she basically fellates the uh, commandant while he's giving the speech, and he's like, oh, stumbling his words. He's like, oh, it's like really, it just goes on and on. Anyway, and then afterwards commandant walks away in a slightly kind of stiff way and it's like and then he turns back and steve gutenberg like emerges from the microphone stand place and so of course he thinks that it was steve gutenberg and and it just and it it, it just feeds this endless series of like ha ha you got a blowjob from a man kind of jokes and it's just so tedious and then <laughs> not only that but then you got steve Gutenberg using a homophobic slur later on it's like oh please stop it and i'm trying to think of a time when in my life i've been fellated and not looked down mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i i think I, I think if i was if i was doing anything and then i started getting fellated i'd look down it's certainly if i was in the middle of making a speech i'd probably 
it would raise questions and lower my eyes. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so that kind of these sorts of j alleged jokes kind of put it out of. You wouldn't be able to show it to a kid today. Not not that you would anyway, because what rating is it then? I think this is the only one that was an R rating in America. Right. So I, I guess we'd be fifteen in UK. Steve Gutenberg does have some charm, but this, I think this is the wrong film for it. Uh, is in, this is, because this is all about, like, just mean-spirited pranking, and I don't think that's really his thing. He's he's always been much better when he's kind of a bit more down-to-earth, kind of everyman, nice guy next door with a bit of charisma type thing, you know, like Short Circuit and Three Minute Baby and stuff. And, Cuckoo. naturally. And the way he just... <laughs> gets with Kim Cattrall is some of the laziest screen screenwriting you'll ever see. Really? Um, yeah, because there's literally nothing to suggest that they should get together for any particular reason. It's just assumed that, right, he's probably the best looking guy on the screen. She's the best looking woman on the screen. They're just going to get together. And it's just so lazy. And yeah, the denim shorts he wears. Wow. <laughs> Are you going to watch any more of them? No, I, I probably <clears throat> to be honest, because I wasn't even that keen on it at the time, to be honest. And I, it certainly doesn't pass any kind of nostalgia test because I, I can't see anyone who has no fond memories of Police Academy or its crazy characters. If anyone hasn't got that, then they would just watch it and think well, there are no jokes in this film. You know, you and might just, well watch something unpleasant. Like, yeah, you just you just watch like twenty one or twenty two Jump Street, wouldn't you? Jokes in it. Yeah, I, I the thing is, I think over the years, because I got a feeling again when I worked in a video store, they were kind of because the later films were PG. They were the kind of films I would check on while I was working because if I was distracted by serving a customer, I wouldn't I wouldn't care if I'd missed ten minutes of it. So I'm pretty sure that I've watched all of them, but I remember nothing about any of them apart from a really busty woman jumping into a pool. I remember that. I think that must yeah. be two. Yeah, but that's again. I remember that because I was a teenager. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to bother with the other ones. No. How many? So the last one is Mission to Moscow in '94. So there was. I think there were six sequels, or maybe six films overall. Anyway, too many. One was too many. <laughs> well, from a really unfunny comedy to a really crap horror. Um, this next one from me is a film from 2017 called Redwood, and it clocks in at the golden time of one hour and 20 minutes. And this is a film that stars uh, Mike Beckingham and Tatiana Nardoni. Mike Beckingham is Simon Pegg's youngest brother. Um, don't know why he uses a different name. Didn't really look into that much because the film was crap. Um, this was on Amazon Prime. And again, I just thought, I just fancy watching a monster movie. And I'll read out... I'll read out the description on IMDb to you. A couple hiking out in the woods disturb a nest of vampires. Boom. Like, click. One more, I'm there. One more do I want. Um, now, this film is bad on a lot of levels. There's a lot of, like, a lot of continuity errors. But the main plot of um, the two main characters, the young characters called uh, Josh and Beth, who are like a young couple who are, I think they're engaged. And they the film starts them driving up to Redwood Forest, which I think is in California somewhere. And they're just on a three-day hike. Um, 
<clears throat> and they, they just want to get to the top, see this waterfall, camp there, come back down, drive home. And it becomes apparent after a few minutes into the film that Josh has got leukemia. And he says, he tells Beth that it's fine. He's, um, you know, the doctor says there's a high chance. It's just, he'll do a bit of chemo, boom, sorted. No, he's fine. And um, there's a point in the film when they, well, actually, I'll go into that later on because I'm, I am going to talk about this one. There's a lot to say. There's a lot to say. Um, so considering it's just a basic premise, it stumbles every possible moment. But the characters are like just intrinsically unlikable people um they've got no they've got no like chemistry and so what happens is well they just bicker it's like the bickering is there as a way to sort of like create tension and cause arguments and panic attacks and stuff so they start off and they turn up at this redwood thing and they park the car and they get out and a guy called steve who's like a park ranger comes out and he is like um a slightly nervy but really helpful man he gives them a map and he makes sure they're okay and he says i oh, don't go off the trails um here's a map for you um and you know if when you get to the top if you struggle there's a cabin and, and i'll be there just let me know if you need any help but he's a really nice man and as he was doing this dialogue i leaned over to Faye and said oh what a really nice bloke if we ever go camp and i hope you know i hope he's there kind of thing haha he gets in his car and drives off and then they basically look at each other and say oh, what a wanker what a tosser and i thought what what was there did you hear different words and so you're instantly like, why are you just why are you just irritating off the bat before you've even really spoken? So I thought, fair enough, that was odd. And then the film goes on, and I've never seen a film before where it's almost like they had a script and they went off to film the script. And when they were on location on the mountain, things that were being said in the script didn't make sense to what was happening on the screen and no one thought to correct it it's just like no that's a script we'll just do it for instance there's a bit where they get attacked by vampires and they because that's what the whole thing is about they get attacked by these vampires they climb out of the tent like basically luckily they've got clothes on and they just see the vampires throw a flit distract them and they just run away and <laughs> and they just run into the night. And I said to Faye, I, I probably would have stayed by the campfire, really, and not run blindly into the woods where the vampires live without anything, light or anything. And the film cuts, and it's morning, and it's like 7 o'clock. And they just kind of, it just shows them coming through some trees and slowing down and sort of you know, breathing heavy, as if they've been running for like five hours straight. And then the bloke turns to the girl and says, how much water have we got left? And she goes, none. And I thought, well, no, you had none, did you? Because you got out of a tent, ran in the middle of the night. What, like it's quite plain that 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 shouldn't have been a line that was delivered and then she says oh we've run out of we've run out of food as well and i thought no you haven't run out of it you haven't got any you've just run from a tent in the middle of the night you what and this happens a lot um there's a lot of continuity errors and stuff like that but the the biggest the way that the boy has leukemia and the the the, the conversations they have uh about him sort of uh, saying, you know, I've got leukemia, I'm going to be fine. But then almost use, like, weaponizing it to sort of cause arguments. And then she'll do the same, like, oh, it's not you, we've both got it. It doesn't just affect you, it's it's also affecting our relationship. And I thought, everything you're both saying is just awful and unpleasant, and you have no chemistry, and you're saying these awful things to each other. Um, and there's a scene where they sit down on a rock, and he's talking about, like, I hope I get through this, because you know, he's a musician, he's like, oh, I just I feel like I've got more great music in me and it's supposed to be this like touching sequence and she is actively like rolling her eyes and like fake yawning but there's no one else there 
he's like facing away from me and i thought why are you with this man then if he's now he's actually opening his heart and saying that our music is like the thing that's keeping me going and you're like oh here he goes it like what yeah, why are you with him that would have been quite key part of his personality you would have thought <laughs> yeah with him. but uh, when i read oh go on sorry uh, oh, from the sounds of it like i i i'm not someone who's of the belief that a film has to have likable characters in it in order to um, succeed. But I think when in a film like this, where clearly the characters are meant to be relatable, yeah, yeah, liked, they're meant to be the ones like that scene where, you know, the supposed weirdo gives them a map and stuff. It's just a nice person. Like their reaction afterwards is kind of meant to be a, a proxy for our reaction, isn't it? So like, we're thinking the same thing, what a, what a, what a wanker sort of thing. But actually, <laughs> if if you get that disconnect so early on, it's very difficult to claw it back, isn't it? Especially when the film consistently hammers away at it. Um, the the death blow for me came about half hour into. The, I did watch the whole thing because I was just just baffled at where it was going to go, how it could get worse. But the killer blow for me was um, halfway through the film. Um, Nicholas Brendan turns up. Nicholas Brandon, who played Xander in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Right. Uh, right, so he rocks up, and obviously they give him lines about vampires because he was in Buffy, and it's like a bit meta, and we're supposed to laugh at them, but we don't because they're badly written. About... So he turns up, and he's another ranger, and he's there, turns up at their camp, and he, legit, again, is a pleasant man, not mysterious or odd or threatening at all. He turns up, and he's a really nice bloke, and he just says, just checking you're okay, I saw your campfire. Make sure you stay on the trail because it's dangerous and let me know if you need anything. Do you and, look a bit like Bruce Campbell? Uh, not so much, actually. Yeah. Uh, no, no, I don't think it is. He's kind of grayed and stuff and he's, he still yeah. looks good. Um, I'll mention him in a bit as well. But he, when he turned up, he delivered a few snippets of dialogue left. The boy said something snarky again, which made me hate him even more. And I thought, oh my God, you have just both been acted off the screen by a cameo from Nicholas Brendan. Because when he turned up, I thought, oh, he's acting well. Okay. I mean, he is. He sounds like Matthew Perry when he talks. And he is like a really, I, I find him like a really likable bloke anyway. Um, but that was it for me. I thought, oh, my, now that you're, you, now that like an, an actual actor's turned up and just done a little spot for a couple of minutes, your your talents are really laid bare here. Like, and, and then with that as like a high watermark, whenever they're walking and talking, you think, no, I don't believe any of this. It's, I, I can't stand you and I cannot wait for you to both die. Um, Beth as well, for no reason, is uh, an Irish actress and she's putting on an American accent for no reason because Josh is British. And it, it's it's just all over the shop, like completely all over the shop. And it's almost like because you can tell the film was f it was filmed in sequence, the further into the film it goes, the lazier ever an accent's become. And by the end, she's literally just wearing a felt top hat with a buckle on it and holding a shillelagh you know just just don't do the accent just speak in your normal accent um and yeah it just it's just crap there's a bit in the middle where nicholas brennan says to them are you hiking or is because you've got leukemia are you looking for the crypt where you have to sacrifice a loved one in order to heal yourself and he says no and you think all oh, right that's what's gonna happen then isn't it and that's it. That's the film. And it's crap. What's it called again? <laughs> Redwood. Blood, red, in the woods. It is crap. And the the people in it, 
are so just unlikable that it's put me off them as actors. Yes. So I just I know that Mike Beckingham is obviously in Simon Pegg's. This is the Truth Seekers. The new thing he's doing Nick Frost. And I was thinking I might watch that. Uh, and now I'm just thinking, oh, no, no, I don't want to watch that because this film was so bad. But Nicholas Brendan gets away with it. He gets. Mm. It. gets I didn't. That's what I was going to say. Nicholas Brendan is only in the film for like five minutes, but I've always, I never watched much of Buffy. I watched a few episodes over friends' houses and stuff, but I always find him really amiable guy. And it turns out that in real life, he really struggles with alcoholism. But mm. in this, he doesn't look like he, he looks quite fit in this film. But I did, I do think, oh, I wouldn't mind you rocking up in some more like low budget yeah. horrors because he, he's just a really likable man whenever you see him. And mm. he, he was the best thing about this film. And it was a cameo. Well, wow. okay. Um, that is what's that on Prime? You fucking know it's Prime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. Yes. Uh, well, let's switch to Netflix then, and I feel pretty, which is a magical realist comedy starring Amy Schumer. Like any comedy that is a vehicle for a comedian, it your capacity for it will depend on your feelings towards that comedian. Um, is this is the it... one where she falls off an exercise bike? Sorry. Yes. Yes. Um, so it's, it's not what? written by Amy Schumer, though. Um, so it isn't really like a kind of ego vehicle for her. She plays, Amy Schumer plays Renee, who's kind of a slightly podgy, unconfident young woman living in New York with a dead end job, literally in a basement. Um, yeah, she has this accident in the gym, bumps her head, and she wakes up believing she is a super hot model. And this is the best bit. Obviously, it always is the best bit where the kind of the curse or blessing happens and it's sort of fish out of water almost. So and there's a lot of mileage in her in watching her kind of talk to her friends and colleagues with this kind of belief that she's completely transformed. And like <laughs> so she'll go to her friends and say, look, she'll call them up and say, look, can we meet? Although you're just going to have to believe it. You're going to have to believe me when I say it's me. Sort of thing, and of course they just turn up, and she's exactly the same. And she's like, "It's me. <laughs> it really is me." Um, so she meets this fairly nerdy, slightly feminine guy, and he adores her confidence, and that same confidence gives her a leg up in her career. Obviously, we're waiting for the moment where the curse slash blessing wears off, and can she carry that confidence into the world if she sees herself as she truly is? I think she, Amy Schumer's honesty as a performance is quite important here in fact it's really the key thing because she's um she's got this unflinching willingness to just present her body as it really is and and i think the crucial thing is she's not very fat or very unbeautiful she's just a kind of an ordinarily quite pretty woman and and this is the the actual comedy is pretty pretty snappily written and sometimes truly observed i'd say i do think it touches on some quite profound ideas especially the nature of self-confidence and self-belief because i was thinking if you really are super hot you're going to get positive attention regardless so do you even need the facade of confidence or is confidence itself just a facade whereas if you're a bit kind of schlubby then confidence is suddenly a very positive trait like because if you're super hot and you've got confidence, then people might look at you as arrogant. Whereas if you are a bit schlubby, then then that confidence is very seen very positively. It's almost like an act of defiance in a way. So I, I'd say that as the the magical concept itself, I'm not sure it really holds up because Renee is 
utterly deluded by her own image. And yet she seems remarkably unchanged in terms of her kind of natural down to earth charisma, which doesn't really make sense. Um, the film follows the rom-com structure uh, down to T really. It is, establishes this kind of lonely, but also vaguely aspirational NYC kind of life. Um, you get the comedy section in the middle, then you get the romance section, then you get the sad bit before the triumphant finale. So it, it covers all that. But it is, I'd say it's elevated by a pretty smart script and there's good chemistry between Amy Schumer and the love interest Rory Scovel, who apparently is a stand-up comedian himself. So I one of my favourite... I like the... Yeah, because... I've seen this twice, weirdly. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've seen it because I think Faye's watched it twice and both times. And I think it's a, a testament to how above average it is, is that I watched it, half of it from the first time. And then when it was on again, I sat down and I and I was you know, sat down probably on the laptop or phone doing something. And then I once again got engrossed in it again um, yeah. because it's quite good natured. And I, the, the two bits that I remember, the I really like the, um, the wet t-shirt competition sequence. And... And also, it really tickles me after the curse has been, you know, the lifted sort of thing, or the, uh, the the gift has been taken away, and she meets goes to meet Rory at a bar, and she yeah. is thinking like, oh, now that I'm fat and ugly, he's not going to even recognise me, and he's like, she's like sat at the bar turning around, and he's just looking right at her by himself, like, why aren't you just sitting over here? And the faces he pulls when he's like, what are you, what are you doing over there? What are you? And she's like looking at him and then looking away, and that yeah. really tickled me. So. Um, yeah, uh, no, I, I agree. I think I probably I dare say it'll be on again. I'll just do it again at some point. In fact, yeah. it's my favourite film, up with Failure to Launch. <laughs> it's a very, it's an easy film, isn't it, really? And yeah. I, I, I like that it's got this kind of hard concept idea behind it. It's not just a kind of slightly sad sack woman negotiating love in New York. It's, it is that, but it's also uh, got this quite cool concept in the middle of it which does raise some interesting ideas so yeah it's worth a watch so from from i feel pretty to the clove hitch killer which is a, a thriller from 2018 starring dylan mcdermott charlie Plummer, samantha mathis and madison Beatty, who i've never heard of before and um samantha mathis still called samantha mathis yeah she's the one from what was it called? When was it Jack and Sarah with Richard E. Grant? Thinking of isn't it um, that that comedy from the sitcom from the nineties? Is that Samantha Mathis? I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh my god, that is not who I thought it was going to be. Jeez. Who are you thinking of? I need to find out who I was thinking of. Um, where do I know Samantha Mathis from then? Mario <laughs> Brothers? Bloody hell. <laughs> oh, sorry. And pump up the volume with Christian Slate. <laughs> That's what it was from. Yeah, I have no idea. I only know it from Jack and Sarah with Richard E. Grant. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, yes. 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 So yeah, Dylan McDermott, uh, Charlie Plummer, Samantha Mathis, uh, the two, you know, the two parents and the and the young son. Um, this the film is set in uh, in a sort of devout Christian family somewhere in the south, uh, in Kentucky, <clears throat> and the the town was sort of um, just completely haunted by a, a infamous serial killer who used to bind up women, uh, rape them, and kill them 
uh, a decade earlier, and then he just kind of stopped. And the film starts off with um, Donald McDermott and Charlie Plummer and Samantha Massis is like a little family unit. And when borrowing the car for like a date one night, that his date uh, puts his hand down the side, puts her hand on the side of the car, and finds like an old folded up bondage image of just a woman topless with like a ball gag in her mouth. And the rumor goes around the school that Charlie Plummer, who plays the sort of teenage son, is into into bondage, and he kind of gets ostracized from this Christian community. Mm-hmm. And he realizes it's his father's. And then when he goes into uh, his father's sort of shed, he finds under a floor with a box of like all this kind of bondage porn, and he just becomes convinced he's the Clovich killer, and he's trying to catch him out. Um, I, I really like this film because it 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 never gets silly. Um, there's always like this sort of quietness to it, and I've always really liked Dylan McDermott. I first saw him in American Horror Story, and he's got that really wonderful David Cronenberg-like voice, where his voice is quite sort of monotone and low and calming. So when he's in these films, and like in this, where he's playing, um, you know, just the father, and he's just saying to his son, "Look, this is just." He's just explaining, you know, some people have sort of certain sexual proclivities and you kind of think, yeah, in all fairness, if I was born into like a Christian community, it's almost like a minor act of rebellion, isn't it? To like have like a little stash of some saucy porn or whatever, because it's just like sort of fighting against that. Um, And Charlie Plummer is really good because he's such a nervy character. I read when I was reading about this film that Charlie Plummer was almost going to be um, replaced Tom Holland in Spider-Man and he didn't. And you can see that because he's got that kind of nerdy, nervy, twitchy energy to him. And in this film, it's used really, really well. Um, and it's just a, he comes across a, a young girl whose uh, family was affected by the Clovich killer and they befriend each other. And she's kind of trying to help him find out if it's his father or if it's someone else. And... I just really liked it because it's just a very quiet film and you generally don't really know what's going on. And then when the film does kind of reveal its hand, it's not like, okay, that's that. Now it's not interesting. It still keeps this sort of um, quiet, eerie tension up uh, Mm. straight to the end. It feels like a small story. And I was a big fan of it. And I think I will watch it again at some point. So it's definitely one I would recommend, especially if you're a fan of Dylan McDermott, because he's he's a quite a sort of I find him a weirdly unique screen presence that is easy yeah. to overlook. But I've he, always even though I think yeah he is easy to overlook because he kind of looks quite generic in a way, generically handsome in a way. He's yeah aged ridiculously well by the way. He's almost sixty now. Yeah, yeah, he looks fantastic. Um, and yeah, in it's weird because in American Horror Story he was like like a real kind of all American hunk. And in this, he's just, you know, he's got these big glasses on and he's just, you know, kind of a scout leader and stuff like that in, in his community. And he's, he's made out to be like a much sort of smaller framed man. But yeah, it's a really cool little... And I can imagine this film would slip people by because I just... I literally watched it because Dylan Dim was in it just because I like looking at him. And I'm glad I did. And it's, yeah, it's just full of nice performances. Samantha Janus. Is what I was thinking of. Oh my god, the one from like Up and Under with Neil Morrissey. Literally, like from a different continent. (laughs) Yeah, she was from what was that? What was that awful show they were in? Yeah, that was Game On. The what? The uh, the unfunny sitcom. Yeah. Yeah, with the jiggler once. When I find my heaven, that song. Whoops a daisy. That is as unfunny as men behaving badly now. That blokey lad culture. Oh my god. 
the thing is, it's not even those sorts of um, British comedies now. Not only do I like dislike watching them because I just I find it like really cringeworthy because the fact that that was like celebrated that blokey culture yeah. and and I and I I can remember it. I'm old enough to remember it and just oh, no. Yeah. So don't watch um, that. Don't watch Game On. She um I saw her in a stage version of Girl on the Train a year or two ago actually. Samantha Janet. Yeah, and again, well I think she's Samantha Womack now, but um she yeah, again, like Dylan McDermott, aged ridiculously well. So that's good. Um what's next? That's it for me, by the way. The Clovage Killer was my me signing well, I'll, off. I'll knock out a couple of horror movies before we depart then. Um, oh. Nobody Sleeps in the Woods Tonight on Netflix. This is a, a Polish backwards slasher, as in backwards, not backwards, um, <laughs> about a bunch of misfit kids who go to summer camp in the woods. Uh, it's specifically, the summer camp is um, it, it's designed so that you hand over your phone and stuff like that so it's all about you know going back to basics sort of thing um so one group go off camping and they're picked off by these hulking twin serial killers with horrendous irradiated deformities Hmm. there's an unusually elaborate explanation for why the killers are doing what they're doing um and actually you get to see them the killers in quite a lot in the film and probably the creepiest part, the most interesting scene, is where we see the killers simply kind of like ambling around their house. They don't speak, they just groan at each other. And one of them like goes to bed, one of them pours blood out of a shoe, and it's just really grim and creepy. But actually, outside that, the film is pretty standard slasher territory, really. Obviously, it's slightly different insofar it's got a different setting and different language. Um, but really, other than that, it doesn't really have anything. It, it could be anywhere, if you see what I mean. I mean, there's like one okay. reference to the fact that um, a gay character has been persecuted in his country of Poland. And there is this neo-Nazi epilogue thing. But other than that, they could pretty much be American teens. Um, it is highly predictable. I, I guess the order of the kills based purely on their character traits. And I was going <laughs> to okay. I mean, it's pretty obvious. I mean, like, Will it be the hunky pot smoking jock or the quiet, sexually inactive female? I mean, it's pretty obvious. So it is totally aping US slashes, even to the point where one of the nerdy characters describes the rules for surviving a horror movie. Oh, don't do that yeah, shit. It happens. It happens. Um, yeah, and constant pop references from him, obviously. Um, it is well shot and it's nicely lit and it's well edited. And there's some decent gore, some pretty gross kills with good makeup effects. It strikes a balance between dark humour and brutality pretty well. So there is that. I, um, special mention for the score. I don't know who the composer is. Um, and unfortunately, the person who put the tracks on YouTube didn't credit the composer for some reason. But um, it's a really interesting twist on the normal kind of synth soundtrack it's a bit more mysterious a bit more 70s it's got more it's more about like theremin type melodies rather than just simply bubbling bass lines you know what i mean so um that was really good 
so overall, it's a slightly above average slasher uh, on technical grounds rather than the script, I would say. And it does have a really mean streak in it. And the 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 actual villains themselves are quite memorably horrendous. So okay. see, this could be this could be one that I watch because it was you I a, a dirty slasher, and also um, I will say that were I a lesser man, when you said, uh, I, you know, I'd like to point to the score. I would have made a joke about the 2003 film with Robert De Niro, but I didn't. I didn't. I didn't do that. Didn't stoop that low. Didn't stoop that low. Didn't make that reference. Um, I think it was Marlon Brando's last film, actually. That would. Yeah, I think it was. It was meant to be like the, you know, the ultimate coming together. <clears throat> Uh, let me see if I can, let me see if I can sing this right. He, in yeah yeah yeah, in that film, Marlon Brando's wearing voluminous tops and sitting down all the time. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's it. Is that Got the it. theme song of the film? That's the theme. Yeah, it's Robert De Niro comes on at the start of this sort of heist movie and says, "Every time you see Marlon Brando, he'll be sitting down wearing a shirt." 40 sizes too big. Which he was doing 10 years earlier in The Island of Dr. Moreau. Well, although actually in The Island of Dr. Moreau, he was literally wearing like a painter's smock. <laughs> Billowing painter's smock. When um, you start making your own clothing from bed sheets, you know that you are in trouble and you need to put the custard creams back in the packet. Um... All right, we'll talk. So that was... Uh, Nobody Sleeps in the Woods Tonight. Nobody Sleeps in the Woods Tonight. It's yeah, I know it because I've made a note to watch it. What is it on, Netflix or Prime? Netflix. Boom, okay. It's very recent. Um, yeah, uh, and something less recent is Near Dark, which you cannot stream anywhere. I don't know what it is about this film, but it's so hard to get hold of. Um, I had to get, like, some German Blu-ray or something because... I don't know whether it's a rights issue or something like that, but it, it isn't being streamed anywhere. You can't even rent it for money. You just have to get rid of, hold of the um, physical version, which is a real pity because it is a very good vampire film from 1986. You, you must have, I've, I wonder if I've seen this before you carry on, but you must have quite the selection of German Blu-rays now. <laughs> I do. Well, because basically whenever, whenever it's not available uh, in the UK, I suppose I, uh, I can't use like it has to be the same region, obviously. So it has to be like some weird German version. Um, so yeah, um, and often they have the better artwork anyway. Uh, so anyway, this it was directed by Catherine Bigelow in the same year that James Cameron's Aliens came out in 1986. This was actually prior to her marriage to James Cameron, although there is a clear connection because Near Dark. Borrows Lance Henriksen, Bill Paxton, and Jeanette Goldstein from Aliens. And Good. there's even a shot where he walks past the cinema and um, Aliens is playing in the cinema in the background. Good. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, those three, Lance, Bill, and Jeanette, they play the three main like culprits in this gang of roaming vampires in the Deep South. And one of their group... A girl called May meets a young man named Caleb and she bites him without killing him, turning him into one of them. Caleb tags along with them while they rampage through dive bars and truck stops. Um, but despite his kind of illness, he is 
very reluctant to kill. Um, his father's trying to track him down as well, but but can he be cured? That's the question. And can he bring uh, May along with him back into the world of the living? So, mm. near dark, <clears throat> yes. It, I think it's one of the most atmospheric films ever, really. It's so oh, wow, okay. richly atmospheric. It's almost t- entirely shot at night with really gorgeous use of streetlights and neon, which feels kind of natural. It doesn't, you know, like vamp or something like that, where it's clearly just yeah. like... Really, a load of really... neon strip lights in the sewer? Yes. Well, this feels a bit more naturalistic, and it, it's just beautifully shot. And the um, the score is by Tangerine Dream. Good. <laughs> uh, and the, it's a really luscious, dreamy synth soundscape. Um, melodic, but, yeah, really, really lush. Uh, the scriptwriter is Eric Red, who um, wrote the, the Hitcher. And I suppose Good. this is kind of geographically similar territory. The dialogue is a little bit of a mixed bag. It's it's one of those horror movies which, for some reason, refuses to name its villains. So, despite all of what is happening, the fact that they uh, obviously are allergic to sunlight, the fact that they're biting necks, they're drinking blood, they're never called vampires for some reason. Don't know and they that. never order garlic bread as a side in spoons. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. So the dialogue is sometimes a little bit too too smart too esoteric for its own good but um but it's not bad i mean it's it's very much a visual movie to be honest um what i like though because we've talked about i remember you talked about interview with a vampire and how with these endless scenes of um you're trying to show like this really decadent lifestyle and how it's uh, meant to be really really plush and desirable but actually it looks quite boring well this doesn't yeah. even this does not even remotely, I, I suppose it's the same as, in a way, it's the same with the Lost Boys because Interview the Vampire and Lost Boys both try to show actually how desirable it would be to have this kind of lifestyle. This does not even bother going down that route. It's it it's relentlessly grim and really bleak, and and I think perhaps more believable for it to be honest, because rather than these vampires maintaining a kind of wise elegance throughout their years, or for example experiencing these constant peak experiences the vampires are just depicted as really grotesque roaming serial killers who've lost all moral sense because of course the value of human life just means nothing to them so they're just really really corrupt and unpleasant um i think if the film had maintained its quality to the end then it would definitely be my favorite vampire film it's just uh, the last act it's a bit of a letdown. It kind of it goes out with a bang, but it's a big stupid bang, and it's like it's I mean, not because really this is over. It's over twenty years. You can you can spoil if you want, Rupert. Well, he Caleb goes back to get the girl again. Basically, um, he manages to get a cure. He goes back to get the girl and bring her, her with him and take out the rest of the vampires. And it's a bit fanciful that this basically he's a kid manages to do all this on his own and even though they're meant to be i mean like lance henrik's character is like 150 years old sort of thing so yeah um christ his hair must be thinning then he he's gaunt in this film (laughs) um 
it's not really as rewatchable, I wouldn't say, as a lot of 80s gore movies, partly because there's not actually very much gore in it at all. It's weirdly tame. Um, but also because it, it's probably a little bit too grim to be fun to watch over and over again. But if you're up for something very, very moody, very dreamy and atmospheric uh, with awesome synth uh, music, then this is this is your boy, Near Dark. If you can find it anywhere in the world. <laughs> is it really that, that hard to find? Well, I, I don't know why it's just not on any streaming sites, as far as I can see, uh, even to rent. So I don't know, maybe it's out there somewhere through yeah. other means, not sure. Um, um yeah. and you must you must have a couple more to go through surely uh not really that was last of the main ones i was going to mention we've got a little we've got a few minutes haven't we so i'll, yeah. I'll just quickly mention a documentary because i know we don't specialize in documentaries but some of them are quite good and this one was interesting this one was called the the rachel divide um i didn't even get the pun in the title about is this about jennifer anderson's haircut in the early 90s <laughs> no Oh, thank God. Um, no. So this is about um, a lady called Rachel Dolezal. Um, the documentary was made in 2018, but it's about Rachel Dolezal, who was the, she was a president of the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People, sort of an old organisation for basically black rights um, um organization so obviously it's all about you know black representation stuff anyway so she was the president of this um and the naacp in washington county and then it they found out that she was in fact a white woman she had just bronzed her skin and curled her hair uh, wow which is quite remarkable so anyway the the that's literally more than robin williams does in mr doubtfire <laughs> well so the documentary follows it, it focuses on Rachel and her kind of home life as she basically she goes through she does these various pretty disastrous talk shows and speeches trying to put her life back together because the thing is she's not it's not like she got found out and then was like yeah okay I'm sorry that was I was trying to do the I, I went about doing the right thing in the wrong way or something. She still identifies as black. She calls herself trans racial. So, yeah. which I don't think is a thing. And she, it's not met with uh, much approval, uh, to be honest. Um, the film does go into a childhood. And to be fair, it, it she was raised by these pretty strict parents. It looks like very white parents, I like to point out, but, um, they these parents adopted to uh black boys um and they were treated very very poorly in fact i think all of the kids were treated very poorly but especially i think maybe it was two black boys and a black girl as well actually but basically in um in adulthood rachel dolezal ended up uh, <coughs> she ended up adopting these boys as her own sons if you see what i mean so it's weird okay, so yeah. adopting her own brothers and sons so yeah so in a way you can kind of understand where she's coming from why she would have gone down this path because obviously she had a horrible childhood and felt a great affinity for these two adopted brothers but the way she goes about it is highly questionable but it is quite fascinating the way she tries to justify this stuff 
Um, and yeah, but it's also, it is really is a bit of a train wreck as far as that justification goes, because it just, it, it really doesn't go down well with the people she's trying to help. And, um, it puts her in a very awkward position to be honest, but yeah, she's sticking with it. She is apparently, she thinks of herself as black. Fair enough. It. But it's a, it is yeah. a fascinating documentary because it's just this complete delusion in her. And obviously she's, you know, she's trying to pay the bills. So she has to do anything she can, but it, she doesn't come out of it looking great. Won't lie. That does sound, but like you say, it sounds more of a, a delusion than anything else. Like, yeah. it just seems like something she would need like a little bit of therapy to just get through it and to realize you are a white woman. But it think, sounds yeah. like she has complicated matters herself. Yeah, and I, and that's it. What I think the saddest part of it is the, especially the response of her her sons, her adopted sons, because um, the older one basically is like, I'm just going to move to another country to get away from all this, all this negative wow. attention. So that's one of them. And then, but then the younger one hasn't really got that option. And there's something really sad about his interviews where he's just saying i wish this was all over i wish that people would i wish that she would just say i'm white and be done with it basically and i don't know it it's like on one hand like in a lot of circumstances you admire someone for sticking to their guns but these are circumstances where you're like you need to let go of these guns yeah you need to let go of that gun which isn't even a gun it's a knife you don't need to let go of that gun, which isn't a gun. It's a set of dreadlocks that you're going to stitch into your scalp. Yeah, that's different. That is bronze your skin. <laughs> yeah, that is that does sound absolutely bizarre. It does sound more involved than a documentary on like Jennifer Aniston's haircut. I will give it a that. little bit. It probably just raise more issues than perhaps that would have done. It probably wouldn't have affected her children so much either if she was just saying that. Oh, in the nineties, I had I had like an asymmetrical bob. And then they said, no, we've got pictures. And you just, you didn't, you had like a symmetrical bob. And the kids were like, I just wish she'd say that her haircut was symmetrical in the early 90s. Yeah. That probably would have been a calmer. Yeah. That's like but... a documentary. Yeah, so that's it. That's everything. <laughs> so it's got to be film of the week, I suppose. It is a film of the week. I'm looking at mine. And I, I, I just thinking of the curse was was really saucy. And to be honest, the curse at the start of this podcast, I've put a little asterisk next to it to say, yep, that is uh, that's my film of the week. But upon talking about it with you and kind of uh, just rethinking through it, I think I might instead go with Blood Rage because it feels like a lost class. Whereas like the curse was like a really interesting film. And I did like the Clovich killer. Blood Rage feels like a, a weirdly kind of timeless slasher that I think I would happily watch again. So, uh, and I just liked how nasty it was. And it just for no reason at all, really. Um, so, yeah, I think Blood Rage to always a bit of awareness. And whether you watch it under, was it Nightmare at Shadow Woods or Slasher? Just as long as you're looking at Mark Soper doing dual personalities, that's all you need to worry about. Well, I... I mean, obviously, Near Dark is very good, but it is impossible to find. Um, naturally, Ninth Configuration is obviously film week, but we've already had that. Yes. We've already had that last week, so I'm going to go with Color Out of Space. I think, even though it's not perfect, I just think it's one of those films where it is easily available, and 
it could slip under the radar. And it is Nicolas Cage going nuts. So really, and it is Richard Stanley's kind of re-immersion to the film industry. That is the thing that I take away from that more than anything. Like that is a real story of someone who was sacked off like Island of Octomoreau in the middle of the 90s, basically didn't do anything. And then he's come back and made this very like uh, very well put together, well-made, consistent um competent yeah cosmic horror which is quite unlike anything else so yeah color like it the color of space and blood rage so yeah it's been a it's been a good week i i I would be happy if if i were to choose ninth configuration as my film of the week because there's something about that film that just it just feels very special when i was watching it i thought this is a very unique film and i'm very Mm. glad that uh i yeah like, like I was saying, like, I think it does come, it was made in a time when, you know, films in the cinema were these big, like moderately big budget auteur films. So, you know, this was someone's vision for this film. And that's why it's so unusual, so unique. And really, it was just a, a whole whole bunch of these films were made and they did not make money and then they started making franchise movies and sequels so there you go i will say really quickly before we sort of sign off um you you mentioned about mark kermode and that's how i kind of first started hearing about the ninth configuration but i must i must have just heard him mention it a few times but like i don't remember him giving any description of it i just remember mentioning it thinking oh it's obviously like a you know a bit of a lost one i should watch that and i totally loved it but what you and i took away from it weirdly was the one thing that he champions is he always says it's like mad and random and just crazy Mm. and but it's actually like really focused i didn't find that at all yeah i don't yeah i think we both had the same feeling that perhaps we weren't completely convinced by the ending but it was it was a singular idea there's clearly a coherent idea running through it yeah there's scenes of mad people doing mad stuff but but that's not really the point of it they're they're just kind of to depict characters the actual story is about someone uh trying to cure this insanity and that's where it ends up uh so it is it's clearly a film with thought behind it it's not just a random series of it's not just a bunch of drunk people, drunk actors in a castle just doing random stuff. No, because that would be crap. Yeah, that would be very tedious. Um, yeah, so um, usual question. Anything for you um, this week? Anything lined up? Anything on the, in the mail to watch? Uh, I don't think so. Um, I might watch Blood Rage again. Yeah, I think <laughs> you fancy some, some slashes. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm yeah. I'm I'm winging it by the seat of my pants, Rupert. I'm just um, every night I just go on and just see you know how to end the evening, any gold. Yeah. Um, I'm yeah. See, so I, I don't know. There's nothing uh, specific for me, but I I will watch some gold this week. Oh yeah, oh yeah. There'll be some gold <laughs> and some bronze. And some bronze. <laughs> <laughs> So everyone, uh, obviously, we're sponsored this week by The Lost Relaxation Tapes with YorkieBrown.com, so go there. And Rupert, I shall speak to you soon. Goodbye, my love. Bye-bye.